When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Hi, welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Tens of thousands of people came to mourn the death of Ajit Sabri, who was murdered in Karachi, Pakistan on Thursday. He was one of the world's most famous and respected Sufi Kawali singers. Kawali is a form of devotion, prayer, and song, and it's odes, essentially, to the love of God. Millions of Sufis in Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh are crushed by the murder of Ajit. Sufi Islam preaches tolerance and peace. In Islam, it's about as far from the religious hardliners of the Taliban as it's possible to get. It is a practice that is indigenous to Pakistan, and Ajit was performing daily during Ramadan. Ajit was 45. He sang in a duo with his brother who was there when he was killed. He was part of a famous musical dynasty of which his father, uncle, and grandfather are also a part. And he was known for reworking classics popularized by his father and uncle. He was murdered by Taliban gunmen. They consider his music, and in fact music in all forms, to be blasphemous, but particularly they consider music which refers to the life of Muhammad to be blasphemous. The Taliban has also attacked many Sufi shrines in Pakistan and in fact has sent bombers to shrines. Human rights activist Ali Dahan Hassan said, these attacks have a chilling effect on the pluralism and diversity of religious practice and cultural expression in this part of the world. Whenever something like this happens, you are a step closer to being a Wahhabi Salafist wasteland. Fellow musician Arib Asar said, His mission of love has been tragically cut short by those who spread hate in the world, and it is a great loss for all of the people of our country. I personally have been a fan of his for the last couple of years. A friend of mine introduced me to Ajit's music, and so the song that we are including immediately following this is a piece that was already on my iPhone. Thursday was a big day. Brexit sort of took over everything. And I think that we hadn't stopped to take a moment to know that there was any news anywhere in the rest of the world. And lots of folks probably missed that. So that's why I want to include this note here. Thank you. And please enjoy the next piece with me. Rahimi ka sadka Ata 
شانے کریمی کا صدقہ دلا دے لاہی رحیمی کا صدقہ نہ مانگوں گا تجھ سے تو مانگوں گا کیسے نہ مانگوں گا تجھ سے تو مانگوں گا کیسے تیرا ہوں میں تجھ سے دعا مانگتا ہوں کرم مانگتا ہوں عطا مانگتا ہوں الہی میں تجھ سے دعا مانگتا ہوں جو مفلس ہے ان کو تو دولت عطا کر جو بیمار ہیں ان کو صحت عطا کر جو مفلس ہے ان کو تو دولت عطا کر جو بیمار ہیں Welcome back to Hopping Mad. I'm going to talk about the situation on the Spratly Islands today in keeping with our attempt to cover news outside of Europe and the U.S., even though Brexit is sucking up all the oxygen. The borders of the South China Sea and the ownership of the islands there have been disputed since the 1600s when European empires were seizing as many islands as they could in Asia to gain control of Asian markets in spice and tea. After World War I, Japan, who sided with the Allies, was granted control of most of Germany's colonial possessions, which included most of the islands in the South China Sea. Because we weren't very competent and were focused on putting the world back together, the U.S., in its treaty negotiations with Japan, returned those colonial possessions to their right owners, or so we intended to do, but because of some fast legal maneuvering by the government of Chiang Kai-shek, we handed the islands to the then Republic of China. Vietnam and the Philippines, who were busy recovering from a brutal occupation, eventually chimed in and said, hey, the Europeans stole some of those from us, so if you'd hand the ones that are ours back, we'd appreciate it, and thus the seeds of the modern dispute over the South China Sea were born. There's a fact that isn't really taught to us in history classes, but should be. Maps are political. Every single map you've ever looked at is political. The names on the map are political, the projection and shape of the map is political, and the study of maps is often the study of the politics of the map maker. Ask yourself, have you ever seen a map of the early American colonies that showed anything other than European claims? Have you ever seen a map of the 13 colonies bordered by the Iroquois Confederacy? I know that I haven't. And actually, if you have, please email me the map at imhoppingmad at gmail.com because I'd love to see it. In the case of the Iroquois Confederacy, we're talking about an actual nation with a government, with borders, with territorial claims. But I've never seen it on the old maps because the European colonists didn't want to look at America as a land where there were already countries and peoples. For political reasons, manifest destiny being the reason, we wanted to see an empty map that we could fill in ourselves. Maps of Asia are just as complicated and based on similar territorial, economic, and imperial aspirations. The history is pretty complicated, and the main reason it's complicated is the sort of racism that deletes countries from maps if they're inconvenient to the politics of the mapmaker. 
the chaos caused by imperialism in Asia and Africa really can't be understated here. At the time of World War II, there were only two Asian nations which were not partially or totally colonized by European powers, Thailand and Japan. That was the war justification the Japanese Empire made for their territory grabs during the Second World War. If Asia is going to be colonized, let it be colonized by Asians, specifically the master race that is the Japanese people, descended from gods as we are. To be clear, I'm not supporting the genocidal regime that was Hirohito's Japan, but it's important to understand their rationale because of the effect that it had in the region. After all of that chaos, nations tried to put themselves together. The Philippines remained unified, where hundreds or thousands of years ago they'd been several different countries, as did Vietnam. And while Europeans often have maps that show these divided countries, the successor states are Vietnam and the Philippines. And one of the justifications for the northern-southern Vietnam split was that at some point, hundreds of years ago, there had been two countries that came together and became Vietnam. Or, and there are various peoples like the Hmong who live in Vietnam and Cambodia who don't have a country of their own. All these complicated facts are misused often in a, in a racist or political way by people who make maps on behalf of the people who commission those maps. And... This confusion combined with the racism of a lot of European history, which deletes inconvenient nations and the incompetence of American decolonization in Asia is the basis of the case that China is using to claim all of the islands in the South China Sea for itself. And this is the sort of chaos which could see wars fought over islands all around the world. And it's why the UN created the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Now, I have to say some of the reporting on this topic has been fairly depressing and pretty racist. There's, from some uh, news organizations, this dismissive argument we've seen that, oh, these Asian countries are fighting over islands. Look how silly they are. Those of us in the West are so much better and would never fight over something so silly, except that we've done that dozens of times. The U.S., Canada, and Denmark have fought over islands off the Atlantic coast that are near our borders, with the Coast Guard having to intervene between groups of fishermen from various countries. In Europe, you have territories which have been disputed from Helgoland off the coast of Germany and Denmark, Jersey and Guernsey, just off the coast of France, but owned by England. Svalbard and John Mayen, which are disputed territories between Norway and Sweden, and a whole list of other islands that cause problems, not to mention exclaves and enclaves like the Russian enclave near Poland and Gibraltar, which is in Spain, but again owned by England. To avoid trade wars and fishermen attacking each other's votes, which has occurred, and to avoid the conditions that led to Somali piracy, which is based on laws of the sea not being enforced, the UN created the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which I'm just going to call the Law of the Sea from here on out. Law of the Sea takes all of these complicated histories, some of which are steeped in racism, and all of those political maps, and all the other things used for centuries to lay claim to territory, and says, enough. It sweeps all that nonsense away, and establishes some simple rules. Every nation has an exclusive economic zone that only they're allowed to do business in. This means fishing, offshore drilling, anything like that. It belongs to the nation in question. That's what territorial waters are. Netline extends 200 miles off of a nation's coast until it runs into someone else's national waters. And at that point, you draw a line straight down the middle based on the geography of the shoreline. So it's not a line that is east-west. It's a line that's based on what the actual shape of the shore looks like. And 
that gets complicated because erosion means that shorelines change or sometimes countries build entirely new bits of coastline. Looking at you, Netherlands. And that's where cases end up in arbitration. There are also a ton of other questions that get asked about whether there's a population on those islands. In the case of the South China Sea, there is not. And another more complicated questions as well, defining whether a given geographical object in the sea is a rock or a low tide elevation or an actual island. The difference being if it's an actual island and it's owned by China, it extends China's territorial waters. If it's a rock or a reef or a low tide elevation or some other legal term, it doesn't. And it doesn't affect the territorial waters of Vietnam or the Philippines. So what's going to happen is this. On July 7th, The Hague will make its ruling. Much of that ruling is going to be based on the definition about about rocks and stuff, but a lot of it is going to be whether China's created a dangerous situation for Philippine fishermen, whether they've damaged the environment at some of the sites in question, on where Chinese territory actually is, and whether they've denied traditional fishing rights to various people who live in the Philippines. But there's one other point that complicates all of this. Like most nations, China has refused to accept the binding jurisdiction of The Hague under Section 2 of Part 15 of the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, which in English means, whichever way the court rules, China has no obligation to cooperate. It does, however, give other nations an option for politically pressuring China over the South China Sea. And we will be covering this here. Uh, But for now, we are going to talk about the rise of right-wing populism as caused by austerity and Brexit, here on Hopping Mad. is going to discuss austerity around the world and specifically the reaction to austerity by the people suffering from it. We realized, though, that our interviewee was the perfect person to bring in on that discussion. So we're going to start by talking about Brexit and then have an in-depth talk about austerity in Europe, the U.S., and elsewhere. 
We're excited to welcome Math Campbell, an SNP politician who sits in the Greenock and Inverclyde Council and who founded English Scots for Yes. Math, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Thanks, Will. Alice? Uh, welcome. We're really pleased. This is, uh, I think, going to be a lot of fun. Math, Math, you're an interesting person to talk to because you're an English person with a Welsh name living in Scotland and representing the Scottish National Party as an elected official. So with your family and friends and supporters, you've been exposed to a pretty wide range of views and the and reactions to Brexit. And I think, first of all, the question most Americans are asking is, what the heck just happened over there? Um, I, I know that we should really be, you know, um, having an erudite guest here that, that tells you exactly what's going on. Um, I've really no idea either. I'm, we're, I don't think anyone does. We're kind of looking around. It's... Um, I said earlier on on Twitter the other day, Scotland's looking around and it's it's like if when you're in the in a bar and some really bad music comes on and you're just looking around at your friends and just like time to go, yeah, time to go. It it no one seems to know what the hell is going on here. Yeah. So, as as a uh, as someone who who lives in Scotland, what has been your main reaction to the vote, just as a as a Scottish citizen? As, as a Scottish citizen, um, definitely, I think the, the reaction of pretty much everyone in Scotland, apart from a very, very small fringe, is really, yeah, okay, we, we need to have another independence referendum and get out of here quickly. This is, this is the overriding narrative that you hear from a lot of people. There are people that worked for the actual No campaign in 2014, Better Together. People who are actually paid by them, staffers who put their life and soul into it, coming out on, on Twitter and saying, Sorry, I was wrong. We need to go. Uh, J.K. Rowling put up a big defense about how she wasn't a staunch unionist and how she would change her mind in certain circumstances. It just seems to be the entirety of Scotland's just looking around in dumbfounded shock and horror at what the, what's just happened and thinking, no, we, we have to go now. This, this is not us. And, and there's a lot of that happening in England as well, to be fair, because you've got to remember London voted to remain. Uh, J.K. Rowling tweeted yesterday that it was time to go, and somebody tweeted back to her, welcome, and I know that because I retweeted it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you were saying about, about England that there's a similar reaction there. What, what has been the English reaction? I know you grew up in an area that voted uh, to leave. So yeah. talk with family and... It's, it's very much a kind of... It's, it's, um, in Scotland, we're almost of one mind by a very small 10 20%. In, in England, the case could not be more different. It is very split in England. It is much like our referendum in 2014. It is split right down the middle between urban, affluent, educated areas. And I hate to stereotype, but that's the fact. Urban, affluent, educated areas all voted to remain. And the more rural areas and the people less affluent, people at the very bottom, people who have maybe not got degrees, etc., they all voted to leave, and there's just more of them to, to leave, so that they voted to leave. But it's uh, the people that are in those areas. Uh, I've got a, a really good example. I've got a friend who's, who's got a PhD. Um, he's talking about moving his company to Scotland or Ireland. He, I'm, I'm not going to say what he does. He does something um, very high-tech, and I couldn't even begin to explain it. But he's thinking of moving his company to Scotland or Ireland because he just cannot believe that the people around him have voted to leave there's a very massive split and the people who voted to leave think it's all about immigration and the people who voted to stay really do feel european and they're just imagine imagine if if you're you know american imagine 
the people around you voting to leave the US. They feel like their nationhood has just been ripped off them. Their EU citizenship has been torn away and there's nothing they can do about it. There's been a petition and 1.5 million people have signed it already and it's not going to do anything because it was a fair vote and they voted to leave. In Scotland, we have a slightly different situation and I think a lot of people in England are going to start looking towards Scotland and thinking, if I'm resident there on the day of the referendum they hold, I can live in Scotland. I I was interested by the petition. It actually crashed Parliament's servers. But, wow. yeah, oops. But I was interested by it because what it said was that they wanted to hold a new a new referendum, a new vote, and and set a threshold and basically say that unless you get seventy five percent of the people voting and sixty percent of those you know of those people say we need to leave, that in other words, a simple majority was not enough. And there is some logic to that because unless there is a you know, a, a significant majority, 60% or more, I would think, you really do put your entire nation at risk. But more than that, I think that since in the last, in the 24 hours since the election, since the vote. Is it only that long? It feels uh, like a lifetime. Yeah, it feels like miles and miles, doesn't it? But in the in that brief amount of time, um, Nigel Farage has already dropped back off of the we're going to put this money into the NHS, this amount mm-hmm. of money into the NHS. And uh, Boris Johnson has backed off of we're going to cut immigration. And between those two things, I'm thinking, what? OK, so less than 24 hours later and the two people in leadership positions are already saying, no, no, really, we weren't all that serious about those things. If I'm a leave voter. I'm you'd be feeling pretty cheated about now I imagine exactly and and I and I really I'm sitting there thinking okay so now that the leave voters get to see what you know what it looks like just a mere 24 hours after the vote would they vote two months from now are they going to vote the same I I I I hasten to keep drawing everything back to independence but uh yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir there. We had a lot of people in 2014, in September the 19th, wake up and went, hold on, what's this about English votes for English laws? Wait a minute. You know, and, and then yeah. the vow that was never delivered and the, the lies and, and, and that's pushing forward. So I think there is a possibility down the line they could have a second vote or more likely the way British democracy works. First past the post has always been the way with a lot of British votes. So no, 50.001 is enough. But you could see a uh, an endorsement vote, you know, like at the very end of the negotiation process, a final vote to confirm, yes, we're definitely going to leave. And then that could roll back the clock sort of thing. But I don't think it's going to happen. I genuinely don't because the people running the show down there, even Cameron has never been a big fan of the, the EU, although he hitched his fortunes to that wagon and it's it's now obviously, you know, lost a wheel they're not fans of the EU down there. I mean, the the left are. The left are very big fans of the EU, but the left are in... If it's possible for the Tories to be in a mess, the left are in a bigger mess. And I don't see a road back for that. I think the this this was a one-time deal. The shot's been fired. There's no way back for them. And it's going to cause a lot of problems, I think. Yeah. Well, certainly Jeremy Corbyn isn't... Uh... Sure. He's not the incoming prime minister, let's just say. It, it is... The only way that guy's ever getting into number 10 is if he's invited to dinner. That is yeah. just a sad fact about it. It is, I, it is rather stunning to me that 
the leave vote happens, Brexit happens, and then the the next conversation is so who's going to replace Cameron? And you know, I think people are defaulting to Boris Johnson, but they're not doing it happily. No, and, it, it's name recognition. He's the only other Tory they really know of, other than George Osborne, who's who's um, swallowed up by the the Cameron sinkhole. You know. Yeah, and I. I really don't, you'd think after coming through something like that, like the Brexit vote, that there would be obvious, um, well-accepted leadership. And there's not. And in fact, the, the conservatives, the Tories, putting together a cabinet of people who can work with Boris Johnson, that's going to be a treat. Putting together any cabinet is going to be a real problem. I can't see them having another general election soon. But if they did, it would be precisely to get rid of the people that weren't on board with Project Leave because they are bitter rivals and yet they're working hand in glove with each other. It's very difficult for them. At least when we were, you know, our our post-referendum situation, the entire SNP was for independence. Pretty much the Labour and Tory and Liberals weren't, you know, so it was a very clear-cut distinction with the Tories, you know, it's it's brother against brother. It's a civil war down there, and they have no clue how to to go for. They've got no roadmap as to where they're going, and that that applies to both Brexit and the Tory Party itself and the UK government. On the good side of it, on, I try and always look for a silver lining because politicians are always accused of being so depressing. On the silver lining, it gives us a power vacuum to step into in Scotland and say, look, we've got we've we've, we've this gives us a bit of space to to move. I, I don't know if you saw Nicholas Sturgeon's um, address from oh, yeah. House in the morning. Yeah. I, that was possibly the best speech I think she's ever given. It's probably one of the best speeches. But it wasn't an oratorical speech. It wasn't a wonderment of, of rhetorical device. But it was a really heavy, substantive speech by a world leader. You were seeing a prime minister or president in action there. Mm-hmm. And she's Not the only one who's looked like government. a... She's the only one that's looked like a prime minister this whole time. Yeah, I, I think honestly. I think that's get where where we what we that's our possibly only trump card in not to use that word but that's our only only card in the arsenal right there is the is that we've got a sensible roadmap as to where we're going sure there are problems this is a tremendously complicated situation you know the the leaving of the EU is going to cause real problems for Scotland because we're going to have to work out how we can stay and where we go with that but I think them problems we've got the people in place to deal with them and more than that the people the actual populace can have confidence that their government knows what it's doing enough to manage the situation in England. They don't have confidence in their government. And this is where the leave vote picked up so many votes. It wasn't a vote so much against Europe. It was a vote against the establishment and the irony being it was the establishment pushing for it. What was the, uh, what's been the European reaction on the continent to the uh, vote? Uh, I think it's, um, it's difficult to categorize 27 member states as having one reaction, mm-hmm. Um, the far right are, of course, jubilant. You'll have seen Slovakia's far right parties are now calling for their referendum. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the far right are not going to get big movement in the rest of the EU compared to where we are in the UK. But most of the big beasts in the EU, you know, France, Gen- Germany, Spain, Denmark, um, they're, they're saying, well, you know, if this is how Britain's going to go, this is unfortunate, but go quickly. Don't make this a protracted long process and that's not what the uk wants the uk wants to have section 50 when it's good and ready some point down the line 
gives it wiggle room to work out what they're going to do. And the rest of the EU would just rather they go away if they're going to go, go now. Yeah. I, I really think that um, in, on any subject, here's how you know you're wrong on absolutely any subject on earth, any subject you can think of. If Marine Le Pen, Donald Trump, and Vladimir Putin are all in agreement, and <laughs> then you're, if they're in agreement on something, then that's the side not to be on. <laughs> These and are when, people that wouldn't agree on the color of the sky if they're agreeing with you. You're yeah, wrong. That's yeah. right. You're wrong. And when Marine Le Pen yesterday changed her Facebook, you know, um, page to the Union Jack, I thought, oh god, that's just, you know, that is the cherry on yeah. top of a very bad day. Well, the thing is, though, I mean, she's marginalised in France. She's no, she's not going to be getting any oh, anywhere right. big in their elections. She is a joke party in the same way UKIP were twenty years ago in the UK. So I don't see that as particularly negative. If anything, that's just helping the situation that they're allowed to. It allows the serious leaders to point at her and go, no, look, see what these guys are doing. You can't agree with this. This is completely wrong. You can't agree with it. Look who else is agreeing with it. Exactly. But at the same time, we're also seeing a very split. I was trying to find the quote. There is a French minister. I think it might have been Jean-Marc Ayrault, the French foreign minister. I'm trying to find the quote, but I haven't been able to find it, um, saying that, you know, one of the things that Europe really needs to do right now is make sure there is a pathway for Scotland to stay in Europe if Scotland wants to. That's that's significant because they're already looking to try and move things forward. The UK is just stuck in stunned shock as to what's just happened, whereas the rest of Europe is going, well, you know, if they want to go, go. But if Scotland wants to stay, you know, let's 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 work on this. Let's let's actually work together on this. And that's what you're not getting in London. London doesn't like working with anyone. So I think that Europe could end up defaulting to Scotland if only just to sort of push one against London. I kind of, yesterday, after watching Sturgeon's speech, I kind of thought, you know, that's sort of her way of saying, um, okay, eggs is eggs, now we move on. The, you know, we, you have to recognize what is, and, you know, now you move on. And for Scotland, that moving on is moving out. And I, I thought it was practical and simple and very straightforward. And um, that's what leaders do in a time like this. They come out and they're, they sound like they know where they're going. Yeah, that's and, the point of leadership. The, 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 the government here is very much practical where, you know, okay, well, we can't change this. Where do we do next? There's no standing around pontificating about it. There is just a, like, we have to put on a united face. We are doing this, and here's how we'll do it. And I think... That's what you have to do. Yeah. And when you listen to uh, what, you know, Boris Johnson's really terrible press conference yesterday where he, you know, sort of mumbled along and didn't sound like he knew, you know, his left hand from his right and sounded like maybe he'd been... I don't know, drinking a little too much, but it's it was a bad press conference. And That's not what he always sounds like, right? Yeah, that, to be fair, that is actually just Boris Johnson. That was him on, on good form. To be uh, yeah, but um, you know, and then you and you know, Cameron looking like he, you know, like he was shell shocked, and you know, well, Jeremy. That's the thing he is. Yes, well, he is, and you know, Jeremy Corbyn kind of stumbling around and saying, well, we're going to work on inequality and then stumbling off. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking that it's, and, and in fact, I didn't see 
the only the only other world leader I saw other than Sturgeon who really stepped up and looked like a world leader yesterday, as opposed to somebody who'd just been, you know, uh, all axed. Yes, exactly. Was um, Angela Merkel. And she came out and yeah. said, you know, uh, remain calm. We will handle this. Everybody sit down. Everybody take a breath. And I, you know, she's in just an enormously bad situation right now. And I don't envy her job at all. But she was very, very good yesterday. And I am not a fan of hers. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, you will not hear words like this from me very often about that woman. But she was very presidential so to speak she was very uh-huh. she was very much a leader yesterday and i thought yeah leave it to the women the women stepped up yesterday they, they did and, and the thing about nikolai that you, you I, I, this was pointed out and i'm i'm not speaking i should i should emphasize i'm not speaking on behalf of my party and i'm not speaking on behalf of my council um standard politicians disclaimer there um <laughs> but the the thing that really struck me and it struck quite a few other people is this is the leader of a devolved government. As much as we talk up the Scottish government and we talk, we call it the Scottish government. It used to be called the Scottish executive. Um, so we renamed it Scottish government to give it some gravitas. But as much as we talk it up, it is a regional devolved government. It is like a state government. And yet, can you imagine a governor in the U.S. talking the way um, Sturgeon did yesterday? No, she is a world leader now. That was essentially a massive, you know, okay, well, if we're going independent, I'd better step up. And she stepped up. She brought game, you know. And that's, it's definitely telling that Scotland's a lot less worried about the situation now after that Sturgeon broadcast. She actually is leading the country and she is saying, don't worry, I've got this. Things are bad, but here's how we fix it. Whereas in England, they really are in just stunned and the reason they're stunned is because the Leave campaign didn't think they were going to win. Right. They had they had some idea that, okay, they might be able to get it close and they might even, in, in their wildest dreams, they might just be able to squeak a win. But they didn't think they were going to win. They really didn't. And if you go back to the footage from Farage and Bont Johnson from about 10 o'clock when the polls closed here at night, you know, they were saying, well, you know, we think Remain are just going to win. We think we've given it a good shot, but the fight will continue. All, all the usual platitudes. And, you know, when it comes to about three or four in the morning, there was a, I was watching it from the count center because I was, of course, at a count watching us vote for Remain. And there was an actual interview with Boris Johnson and I think it was, um, I think it might have been Michael Gove. The the reporter said, oh, yeah, by the way, this has just happened and it's a massive vote for leave in one of the county constituencies in England. And it's just a look of stunned shock on his face. Like, what, really? Oh, it was a str- uh, not... Not Strathmore, that's not right. Uh, uh, Southampton, perhaps? Maybe. It was. It began with an S. I'm sorry, I'm not, my brain, <laughs> like, that's help, helpful. But I, yes, I normally was, have recall of this, but it was three o'clock in the morning, yes. I was standing count center. <laughs> and I was doing <laughs> the same thing, I was watching it all, you know, I'm, I've got, you know, three screens going, watching it, and, you know, on three different, uh, and you know, watching everything I could find on everywhere and um uh and i saw that moment and he when they when those results came in and i don't know it's a jurisdiction that begins with an s that's all i can that's all uh-huh. i can remember so, but how did we so far on about this but it, it's true it, it is it is really true you, you, they're just stunned there the... yeah so i so here's the thing that i i've been I've been thinking about a lot of things since this all came in and one of the things i really thought a great deal about is 
is um, austerity, primarily mm-hmm. because actually my intention today had been talk- to talk about how austerity is affecting political movements around the world. And it's certainly affecting what's going on here in the United States. It's even starting to creep into Chinese politics. Uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, you know, all through Europe, certainly Greece, you know, Spain, the election this weekend in Spain, it is, austerity is, is everywhere. And I think, from my perspective, one of the most dangerous and insidious things about austerity is that people get the, you know, the middle class and the working poor get angry because they are losing ground. They are working harder and they are losing ground. And this has been going on since before the global financial crisis. It's been going on a long time and they know it. And they've been saying it for a long time. And for instance, labor and, you know, Democrats, we've just not been listening. We have not been listening in the right way. We have not been listening. We have not been hearing what people have been saying. And they've been saying it every way they know how, except by saying austerity is killing us. Um, But the fact is they get, they, they start, you know, they've, They've got such a level of anger about it at this point in time that they just don't know where to put that anger anymore. And I think right. in the U.S., what you end up with is, you know, people voting for in the primaries, voting for Bernie Sanders and voting for Donald Trump. And in and I'm not saying that a vote for Bernie Sanders is a bad vote. I'm just saying that's when you look at that, I think austerity played is playing heavily in this election and when you look at the brexit vote i think austerity played a huge role particularly across the midlands in um in the success of the leave vote and i think the real farcical thing about that is that that's not the eu that's doing that that's london that's doing that to them they're still going to be stuck with london no matter what happens london I, comes ironically, with. it's actually going to be more powerful now a lot of the things that the exactly. tories have wanted to do with austerity they're going to be able to do now they haven't been able to because you know the eu eu's got all these these pesky human rights conventions and and spending policies and let's give money to the poor and and the tories wanted to cut that off and they couldn't because of the eu and now they're going to be able to i i really feel bad for them Eggs, you know, agricultural subsidies to uh-huh. farmers. It's the I, I mean, this is this is one of those things where people, you know, uh, here in the states and and in the UK have have voted to cut off their nose despite their face. And I, I just, I, I always wonder how it is here, and this is one of my husband's pet peeves that. Republicans are so good here at telling the story, at wrapping a story around their agenda items and making it human and making it personal and making it something that people can relate to and get mad about. Mm-hmm. Democrats are terrible. We are we give people facts and statistics and roll out reports and experts and those things can all be exactly right and that doesn't matter because people can't emotionally attach themselves to them. It's, it's anti-intellectualism, and it and it's a, it's driving the West into a real dark place. Anti-intellectualism is is re- it not only is it difficult to say, it's also driving a lot of this austerity agenda. You are seeing people say, "No, I don't believe them, guys." 
all them girls, they're standing there and giving me all those facts and figures and they've all got degrees and professors and they're experts in social economics and they're saying this is bad for the world. But this guy over here says he'll buy me a beer and talk about it. And that guy over there is exactly the same type of person as the experts, but he's on the right wing and the right wing are really good at saying, no, I'm your friend. Exactly. Yeah, I might be a professor of, of this or uh, you know, a, a long-time served politician, but I'm your friend and I'm telling you to vote to give rich people a tax break because the money will trickle down and they believe it every time and it's it's so frustrating when you're like no 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 they're helping themselves they're robbing the bank and you're helping them it's your money you're signing up for it when you vote for george w bush when you vote for donald trump you are signing up to have a poor little rich boy lead you are you kidding i mean it just Anyway. It's very difficult to see, but yeah. one of the good things about austerity, you're saying about the, uh, the, uh, the misdirected anger, I think this is where Scotland's actually got something you guys can learn from because we don't have the misdirected anger so much here because we've told people where to direct their anger. We've said, look, there's a reason why we've got a massive budget for shortfall. There's a reason why we're going to have to close the local library. There's a reason why we can't bring in more immigrants that you actually need and like and want and they help your economy because of these guys and it's the Tories in London look they're the guys that are doing this there's your anger there's your hatred this is where you should direct your your votes against and people are doing that and people and, get it they're getting uh-huh. when you give them the story when you give them the real um uh, make it human for them they get it uh-huh. And that's what we've actually managed here. The, the, the indie ref was in many ways, our 2014 ind- independence referendum was, I think, a seminal moment in Scottish, UK, and in many ways, European politics, because it was a completely different beast. It's like the tale of two different referendums here. The tale of the two referendums is we had one, and it was all about hope and positivity and driving away the, the bad ideas of austerity and the right wing, etc. And this referendum which has been run by the people in London, have, is, is not Project Fear versus Project Hope. It's Project Fear versus, versus Project Even Bigger Fear. And, and it you know, pox on both the houses for that. But that's, that's where they went with it. We went with Project Hope. I mean, I, read, uh, sorry, I, I led uh, English Scots for Yes, a campaign group for people voting yes in Scotland who were from England. And you'd have thought there would have been some some nationalist element. A lot of people were. We had a lot of TV interviews with like people from um, you know European media and some US media sources as well. And they were saying, "But wait, aren't you English? Surely this is about nationalism." He said, "Yeah, it's about civic nationalism. We are a people that live in Scotland, and we want hope. We want to do all these things against austerity, etc. And it's not about where you're from. It's about where we are all going together." We gave people a destination. We gave them hope. And the English people in Scotland and many other people in Scotland voted for it. We just didn't get quite enough of them to vote for it. I think next time around we will. But to bring it back to austerity, we gave them hope. We gave them a vision. We gave them a cogent pathway to get to that vision. And people were often for it. If you give them austerity and, and then say, well, look, you know, this austerity is bad. Here's some facts and figures. You're not giving them hope. You're not telling them a story. You're just giving them an economic analysis briefing. And I fall asleep during economic analysis briefings, and I'm a politician. You know, so it, 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 that you can't win the, the hopes of people if you don't give them hope. Exactly. Mm. I and went I, on for a very long time there, sorry. No, no, no. That's that's, but that's exactly – you have summarized it um, exactly – but it is. let's let's for a second just to make sure let's let's talk about civic nationalism for a moment because 
you know, we've talked about the ethnic nationalists, and I do think that a lot of what UKIP is about is that blood and soil ethnic nationalism. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm so distasteful. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Chris Hayes here. Uh, a lot of us all around the world are nervous about this reaction and about the reaction to Brexit and about the causes of Brexit. And it's this fear of a world where there's a constant fight between uh, neoliberal economic masters in the conservative party and, and ethno nationalist reactionaries. But just to lay this out, once again, you are an, an English person who founded English Scots for yes, a group for English people living in Scotland. You're an elected figure for what calls itself a civic nationalist uh, group, the Scottish National Party. So what, put plainly, is civic nationalism? How does it differ from the ethnic nationalism of UKIP or the Tories and Republicans or Le Pen or these other conservatives? It couldn't be further apart. Civic nationalism is the act of saying, okay, this is a polity, this is a country, this is a region, this is a place... We all live here, regardless of where we're from, whether we're Muslim or Christian or Hindu or whatever. You know, we're all in this place together. We are all in it together. So let's make the best of it because this is us. We are Scotland. We are Scotland. We have many colors. We have many faiths. We have many backgrounds, but we are Scotland. That's civic nationalism. Ethnic nationalism is the guy that they interviewed on um, British TV yesterday who said, no, it's all about getting rid of the Muslims. That's ethnic nationalism. Ethnic nationalism is um, Nigel Farage saying British jobs for British workers. He doesn't mean British in a born-in-London kind of sense. He means British in a white sense. It is a very racial, ethnic conflict situation. And it is so dangerous because the language they're using, it's... I don't like to draw parallels, and I'm not going to draw too many, but there was a, there was a distasteful poster that Nicola Sturgeon said was horrific, and I quite yeah. agree, of Nigel Farage standing in front of this poster, and it is almost exactly the same design of poster as one used by a certain far-right group in the 1930s in Germany, who later went on to get quite a lot of electoral success and do some very horrific things. I'm sure we all know who I'm talking about, but the point is that, that that is what ethnic nationalism is. It's the fear of the other. Civic nationalism is an inclusive thing, saying we are citizens of the world, we are citizens of Europe, we want to make this country better for everybody who lives, works, and comes here, including immigrants. Ethnic nationalism is an out, is an inclu- is, is a non-inclusive, it's exclusive, in saying we are the white people that live here and you can go away because you're not us and you're the reason why we've got problems. It is, we're inclusive, they're the exact opposite. They're pushing away. So I don't even like to call that nationalism. I just call it what it is. It's fascism. Mm. I had an amazing um, lunch, four-hour lunch meeting yesterday. And uh, it was basically me and a little flock of Republicans. And at one point in time, one of them asked me, we were talking about Social Security. And mm. I was, you know, trying to explain to them that social security doesn't work the way they think it works. So they asked me about how, well, then how does it work? So I explained. And then we're talking about what happens when there's a large population of retired people and a smaller population of people who are working, who are in the active workforce. And they're very concerned about that. 
And I said, well, you know, there's a really obvious solution for that, right? And one of the women said, well, you cut back on the benefits. And I said, no. <laughs> no, you bring in more workers. Yeah, think about it for a minute. And they're they're all sitting there and they're looking and they're looking and they're thinking. And these are these are smart. I mean, these are smart and in fact, open-minded people. And they're thinking and they're thinking, nobody's got it. Nobody. And finally I said, immigration. And, you know, you bring in people for the workforce and you fill those positions and you train nurses and you train doctors and you, you know, you build the the supplies and the resources and the goods and services that you need in your economy. And there's dead silence around the table for a minute and they're all looking and they're all, you can see that thinking, thinking. And one of, one of the women finally perks up and she says, how come no one's ever said this to me before? And then the the woman next to her said, I always think about immigrants as weighing on our economy. No one's ever said they could yeah. add to our economy. And I'm thinking, holy God, it is, that's exactly the problem right there. It's a messaging. It is not, the issue is not immigration. The issue is we're not saying as, we're not saying, um, and I hesitate to use this phrase because it's now Hillary's campaign motto, but we're not saying we're stronger together. And this is why, you know, we're saying, okay, we can find the resources to help it, you know, to do this for immigrants. We should allow immigrants in. It's the right thing to do. We're saying things like that instead of saying, no, these are the benefits to you of for immigration. This is what uh-huh. you get from immigration. We're not saying, we're not telling that story and we're not, it's not even that we're not telling it well. We're not telling it at all. The thing is, that's what we are doing. We, in the, in the Remain campaign in Scotland, uh, Stronger In, um, yeah, even the way we called it, we branded it Stronger In, not Remain. Stronger In, we are stronger in. We are stronger with the rest of Europe. It's an inclusive thing. But that ex- inclusivity includes immigration is good for Scotland. And I live in an area, Inverclyde, um, Inverclyde Council is, is the council I sit on. We have the biggest depopulation problem in the whole of the UK. We are, we are seeing massive amounts of people leave. They don't come back. They don't bring their families back. And we're not seeing enough people come into the area. So in a way, we're almost a little bit like Scotland on mass there. We need people to come in. But when you bring immigrants in, they make things better because, they, yeah, they, they take your jobs. They're taking our jobs. Yeah, they are. And they're buying our goods and services. They're buying houses. They're raising their children in our schools. They're, they're bringing money into our local economy and spending more here. Now, that works at a local level, but it works at a national level as well. Immigration is good for you. Immigration brings in people you don't have. It brings in skill bases you don't have enough of. And if you target that immigration to say, okay, you can come in. If you can find a job, great, come on in. But if you're a nurse, you, we'll, we'll give you money to come in. You get more people. And it, and it's, it works. And the right wing always seem to say, oh, immigration's the big problem. No, the only problem Scotland has with immigration is we don't have enough. Yeah. Telling people that, once you give them, again, once you you, you bring more people with um, honey than vinegar, you know, so once you tell people, yeah, here's the hope, here's the vision, we need more immigrants and here's why, they respond positively. If you just give them fear... They respond negatively and it becomes a race to the bottom. Who can be the nastiest politician? And that's what the EU campaign in England did. And it it seems from that, the only thing I can draw from that is that Boris and Nigel Farage are the nastiest politicians. And that's where they went. They went with the dark posters evoking, you know, the Third Reich imagery. 
because they were selling the negative story, we sold a positive story, and and it's an, and it's a positive story that's based on the facts. Immigration is good for the country. And I think that both Farage and Johnson still have not owned and are going to have to start living with really quickly the damage that anger does to a society. And the same is true here. This, you know, this uh, unending drumbeat in that the Republican Party has um, waged here for many presidential elections now. Yeah, decades. Since Reagan, really. Um, you know, uh, since since the moment that he said, you know, the most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government, you know, and I'm here to help. And uh, when you... When you create that kind of anger over a long period of time, it it does a level of emotional, psychological damage to a society that you reap. You ultimately you reap what you sow. Ultimately, you you get the assassination of Joe Cox. Yeah, I didn't want to go there with it because it is just tremendously horrific, and you yeah. know it really infect. As, as an elected politician who does surgeries on a Friday, it really affected me and many of my colleagues as well, the, the idea that someone could do this to an MP. But this is the right-wing media's fault in many respects. I mean, you know, yes, it was a madman, a sick man that should be tried and locked up for terrorism, as he probably will be, I hope. Sure. But ultimately, you know, he doesn't live in a vacuum. The right-wing have a part to play in this. The right-wing media cannot wash its hands and say, oh, this is the act of a lone gunman. Yeah, a lone gunman that reads your newspaper when you when you talk about immigration in the foulest of terms, when you when you evoke imagery from the worst periods in human history, them chickens come home to roost. And it happens in the States as well. You know, Fox Media cannot be sitting there saying, This isn't our fault, this isn't anything to do with us, this is a terrorist attack. It's a terrorist attack by someone who watches your watches your T V and thinks that gay people are bad, bringing in the Orlando thing. Um, well, these, Oklahoma City, these, Timothy McVeigh in o- exactly. Oklahoma City. It's there is a really good image floating around. I think it was from Family Guy, and it's a it's a checklist, and it has a white skin color at the top and a very dark skin color at the bottom, and it just goes from um, lone gunman, um, murderer, terrorist, fanatic, you know, and it goes all the way down the road. The British media were not using the word terrorist to describe that man. Yet he is a terrorist, and he has been charged with terrorism. If he had been a Muslim, it would have been terrorist attack on MP, not lone gunman murders MP. And that's the difference. The right-wing media thinks it can absolve itself from all these sins by simply saying, oh, it's nothing to do with us. Right. And, and they have a part to play in it. They're not entirely to blame, but they have a, they have a part to play in these, these atrocities. And they need to row back on the language and stop trying to polarize debates. And I think it is, that is endemic really all across Europe and, you know, look at the, you know, if you just look at the, basically the hate that comes out of Le Pen and, you know, yeah. her, you know, her crew in France that, you know, uh, Cyprus is fighting it in Greece. It is, it's well, everywhere. We we tend in Scotland we look towards um, the Nordic Union a lot. Uh, you know, the Nord- for your listeners that aren't aware, the Nordic Union is uh, it's almost a bit it's, it's a bit like a free trade agreement 
plus added benefits for the Scandinavian countries, even though most of them are in Europe as well. They have their own little Scandinavian Union, the Nordic Union. And we look to that in Scotland a lot. In fact, I think there's a very high chance if, if things go the way I think they're going to go and we become independent in the next two or three years, I think we'll end up joining the Nordic Union because Scotland has a historic cultural link with them. Some of our islands still speak uh, Scandinavian languages. Um, but when we look to the Nordic Union, the left, and this, the left does this all over the world, but we do it very well in Scotland. We seem to ignore the problems they have. And they, they have their problems as well. Scandinavian countries have a real problem with integration and racism. Yeah. And and even their politicians are starting to wake up to this. Okay, yeah, we've got an almost perfect society here. We meet all, you know, they regularly top the measures of human development and the happiest countries on earth sort of things. But they have a real problem with integration because they've they've had it good for so long and now they've got problems, they need to address them and they are starting to address them. You know, if you look at what happened in Norway with Breivik, if you look at... The, the riots in Denmark, if you look at the border controls and Sweden being taking more immigrants than anywhere else in Europe other than Germany, them problems are coming home to roost there, but they seem to have a handle on how to deal with these things. They don't respond with negativity. They push down on their press and say, no, stop publishing these stories. It doesn't help. It just hurts everybody. And, you know, if you look at DR1 and DR2 in Denmark, if you look at the Norwegian newspapers, they are starting to say, okay, yeah, we've got some problems. But here's how we come together as a country and face them, because whether you were born here or whether you emigrated here, we're all Norwegian or we're all Dansk, you know. And and that's that's the thing that is really, really good, I think, about the whole situation, whereas our media don't. And American media doesn't. No. American media is in exactly the same situation. I mean, I'm looking at Fox News and I'm looking at people like Limbaugh and a lot of stuff that they preach that is that is really crypto-fascist. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Hopping Mad. We have run out of time for the broadcast portion of the interview. Check out our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or at imhoppingmad.com. Coming up next is Kager in the Morning here on Netroots Radio. We're back on Extra Mad with Math Campbell Sturgis talking about Brexit, about austerity, and I'd like to actually ask a question about land reform. Math. In Scotland, uh, 432 people own half of the private land. And I know that land reform is a big subject there, and I probably have a different thoughts about that than do you, but I'd like to ask you to tell us what you're thinking about it, where you think it needs to go, and why you think it needs to go that way. Okay, well, um, land reform, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, I represent a very urban constituency. It's about one of the smallest um, council wards in Scotland. In fact, it's very, very condensed. A lot of, lot of people, it's almost in a city in many ways, even though it's in a small town. So I'm not the best on land reform. But that said, I keep abreast of these things. Leslie Riddick, the journalist and uh, media personality over here, she's done an amazing amount of work on land reform. And the land reform bill, of course, is, is chundering through Parliament at, its, at, at the usual you know, gl- glacial speeds of, of a parliamentary bill. Um, now, land reform in Scotland is needed because you said 432 families. We don't know that. We only have the vaguest clues of who owns all the land because it's all hidden. It's not registered in a, in a really easable, re- readable format. So first off, we need to find out who owns all the land. That's a very basic thing, but we need a proper land registry that really has the power to go after foreign companies and offshore accounts and find out who actually owns this land. Like David Cameron's father, the, the papers in Panama, 
one of them was that David Cameron's father-in-law, and I think his father as well, um, owned land in Scotland. We didn't know that. We suspected it, but we didn't know it because it's not registered. So that's the first thing land reform needs to do. The second thing land reform needs to do is, and this really needs to be concrete, this is just my personal view, but there's a lot in the party that share it, I think, is that we need to find a mechanism for allowing community buyouts to be easier, to allow the communities that live and work the land to own the land rather than the absentee landlords. Scotland's history is a pockmarked one full of absentee landlords causing horrendous problems and it goes back all the way back to the high influences you know ethnic genocide effectively so land reform is key to doing that if you look at denmark if you look at sweden and norway you know the folklander movement in the 1970s if you look at those situations there the community owns the land so when you erect like community wind farms the community benefits from that when there's a hydropower installation on a river, the community benefits from it because the community owns the land. Here, it's an offshore account held by a rich banker who lives in London and spends his summers in, in the south of France. So the community gets none of the benefit. So that's why that's needed. How we get there is another question because you also have to balance off the historic rights of landowners. You can't just rip people's land away from them. You know, so that has to be managed well but there needs to be a mechanism for the community to own the land they live on. There's a quote by uh, Mark Combs. He's an estate manager on one of the major uh, Scottish estates. And he says, there are also concerns if the purpose of changing the ownership is simply to allow another party to carry out the same activity as is currently being undertaken by the existing owner as, uh, as this, this, strikes at the essence of ownership rights. And he's not wrong about that. He's, he's not wrong, but it's also a question of scale. You've got these historic estates, and yet ownership is difficult. But in some reason, they own them because literally three or 400 years ago, they took them from the people that lived there by force. And that's an historic wrong. This is This is like trying to solve the the historic problems in, in America with the racial problems and, and repayments, etc., from slavery. This is not one thing we can fix overnight because historic wrongs were done so long ago it's impossible to right them now. But we can do something about the community living there now. So if it's a question of scale, really, if an estate covers 400 square miles and it's owned by one person and there's five different communities on it, wouldn't it be better for everyone if those five different communities had the right to buy the land they live on? Even if they're managing them in the same way, that community gets to manage its land rather than it being owned by a distant sole operator hundreds of miles away. So what it's a question it's a, of scale. What if it's a sole operator who lives there? Well, I mean, they, they don't live on their entire estate. They live on their estate and then they have hundreds of miles of square land, with villages and shooting estates and management farms and tenant farms. So it's, it's, it's not like these things exist in a vacuum. Right. So I'm from California. And mm-hmm. uh, before California was a state, and in fact, when it was still part of Spain, the Spanish government awarded large swaths of land, ranchos, to individual landowners. And mm. as the history of California evolved, those ranchos, many of them survived. Some of them are still there to this very day. And one of the advantages of the ranchos was that they preserved land for agriculture. So, for instance, in the East, 
land got good agricultural land got built on and was no longer available for agricultural use, so it can't feed the people. In California, California um, grows more cotton than the entire South combined. California produces more in um, agriculture in dollars than the entire rest of the country combined. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because those enormous swaths of land, some of those have been broken up now, but they are still owned in enormous swaths, um, and used for agriculture. And had that not been the case, that land would have developed very, very differently. So as much as I am, I have some serious problems with agribusiness, and it's not that I'm an advocate of agribusiness by any means. Um, I'm from Sonoma County, and I support small individual landowners. So let me just say that, you know, uh, all of those who are warming up their email and their um, Twitter <laughs> accounts as we speak. But uh, the, I mean, the other side of the argument, just to make the other side of the argument, uh -huh. the ranchos did, they did perform a valuable function. And See, is that the, the case the in, other... in Scotland? You know, and Scotland does derive a great deal of value from tourism. Are, are these big swaths of land drawing the, you know, are they supporting the tourism economy that is that is of value to Scotland? Well, I think the thing is, I mean, like I said, I'm not an expert on it by any means, but I think one of the problems is that in many situations, not in all by any means, but in many situations, the absentee landlord problem is that they haven't managed things. They've allowed things to go to ruin, and the community has, has come in and fixed it, and then they still have to pay their rent at the end of the month to the guy that's done nothing. So that's part of the problem right there. The other part of the problem is you're talking about, um, you know, preserving the land for agriculture. That gets into some very dark territory in Scotland because the land wasn't used for agriculture until armed soldiers came in and executed people and dragged them off their land that they lived on for centuries and put them on ships to, to the Americas, to the New World, to Australia and then took the land over and filled it full of sheep for grazing. So the clearances still looms large in many of these communities. And the idea of preserving the land for agriculture, for the landowner that took that land from their distant ancestors, the ones that weren't shot or rounded up and sent overseas, that doesn't sit with some of those people so well. So you can see there's sensitivities involved here that go back quite a long time. They, they say the Scots know how to keep a grudge, and, and I think in this situation that's definitely true. But it, I mean, it's just not say, just... That, mm -hmm. that, that clearances is one of the reasons that people named McLeod live in the United States. Yeah, exactly, your, your ancestors. Or, yeah, and, and, well, and I should say, in California, that land wasn't empty. There were Native mm -hmm. peoples there. You know, yeah. that land got cleared. <laughs> there were Native peoples there. They got killed. You know, they didn't get shipped off to Australia and the States. They got slaughtered. Uh, and yeah, it's a pretty sensitive subject in California. But it isn't, I, I think, I'm, I'm just uh, sort of thinking up. in terms of, yeah, mm. exactly. I think it's not just a historic situation. I, I, I bring that in and I say that because I know there are sensitivities there, but I'm not crucially aware of how sensitive they are because I don't live in the Highland Estates and I'm English, so I've got an right. income instance there. I just want to be careful. I don't, I don't, you know, people aren't warming up their emails and pitfalls <laughs> for me because, you know, I'm not, I don't live in the Highlands, but they're fairly close 
you know, we've got an excellent ferry service in Scotland and, and, you know, the stores sell really good pitchforks. Um, no, the, 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 problem, <laughs> the problem is also a modern one, though. You know, they, the, the modern problem of small rural businesses, etc., not getting the support they need, community buyouts allow them to do such things. I was at a conference for social enterprises. I don't think you have social enterprises so much in the U.S., but you should get them more. Uh, social enterprises is a for-profit company. But all of the profits go back into a charitable cause. So, um, like, for instance, uh, a community might have a community bed and breakfast, a hotel, and it's run for profit. But all of the money goes into employing local people like their community, the, 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 the enterprise agreement they have states that they must employ locals to run all their services so you've got a way of giving young people in the area jobs or it could be ex-fenders or it could be um you know uh there's a there's a bed uh, there's a bed factory in aberdeen that um makes mattresses some of the best mattresses in the world they're called glencroft uh, i spoke with the managing director a nice guy and um they employ mostly blind and disabled people they make some really good products but all of their employees are blind and disabled, and it supports them through dignity, through work. So it's a really good way of just giving them a plug there. But um, it's a really good way of um, making social businesses work. And in rural economy, something like 25% of Scotland's social enterprises are in the highlands and islands, and they only have 8% of the population. So it's 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 really profound that the small businesses live and work in that sort of helping each other way. And they can't help each other if they can't get the land the other problem, of course, is so if they buy the land, it's not an asset because they're not allowed to sell the land on. So they can't use it as a land asset to get loans and stuff. But that's another issue. But the point is the landowners need to be need to be responsive to that. And I think if, if you live and work on land and your family have lived and worked there for hundreds of years, having the right to buy it will probably help you. But I can understand the concerns of the landowners in some cases. You know, they've also owned the land for hundreds of years. Their families have, have been. But it's very feudal. It's a feudal situation in Scotland. And changing that is is difficult because if if someone benefits, someone's you know being disadvantaged. Let's let's uh, let's continue this, but to talk about uh, the issues of land in in a, uh, a very urban area like the one that, that you're in. Yeah, Greenock. In in Greenock, what are the difficulties associated with? We we all know that that communities need to be able to build schools or provide uh, space for people to open businesses, shop fronts, that sort of thing. Communities need to be able to do zoning and all of that. What are the difficulties with, with land ownership when it comes to trying to provide uh, spaces for business in a place like Greenock? Well, I mean, we, we have problem, we, we, we have problem depopulation, so we have a depopulation strategy, but we're trying to get more um, businesses to come into um, Greenock, and they've got the tremendous problem that a lot of the shop fronts, the, the retail premises, are owned by large retail consortium, and they're doing what's called land banking, where you sit on the land, you don't use the property, you don't rent it out, and you wait until the market picks up so you can charge higher rents. So there's no impetus to actually get more people in, and that's a problem for us in um, Greenock. But we also have the problem of Quick redevelopment. Question. What, what sort of property taxes do the land bankers pay on unused land? Well, they, they, they pay pretty much um, lower rates, but it can we're changing. That's a changing situation, what they call non-domestic rates, the taxes for land tax, property tax, is uh, changing so that we can charge them the same or even more if the property lies empty for a certain period of time. And that's really good 
because it means they've got an incentive to fill the property with a pop-up shop, even if it's only for a short period of time, and that brings money into the local economy. But that, these, these problems are being faced by, by um, everywhere, everywhere in Scotland and the whole UK, and I suspect quite a lot of the US as well. The Walmart problem is out-of-town shopping centres. You know, They open yeah. up a massive super hypermarket somewhere outside of the town, and the local town centre dies. But the trouble is they only opened that up because the property taxes there were less. And then in a few years' time, when the property tax is up, where they've built their, their new retail development lies, they move off to the next place. It's almost parasitic. And the problem we've got is, is encouraging new businesses. And that's why I'm quite interested in social enterprises, because that brings money into the local economy as well. Increasing new businesses is the real problem with um, solving all our problems for depopulation, etc., is getting them people to buy the land or buy the, the properties and come in and help. And that, that's the trouble with redevelopment across Scotland because you don't want to develop on beautiful scenery, but we need more houses. We need new houses. We need new schools. And finding the money to do that now is also pretty hard thanks to aesthetics. So it's a real perfect storm. And we, how we solve that, I, I honestly don't know how we solve some of these problems. I don't think anyone does. You know, answers on the back of a postcard, guys. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing a very similar uh, thing there to what we have across the United States, where you have small towns where there used to be factories, and the factories are gone, and there used to be certain industries, and those industries aren't needed anymore. Well, I mean, uh, we've got that on the Clyde here. The Clyde, I don't know if you know this, but the Clyde, 80% of all the ships built at one point in time in the 1920s and 30s, 80% of all the ships built in the entire world were built here. We have one shipyard. We have one shipyard left. And it's doing well, thanks to Scottish government inter- in, in, interacting with them and helping them. But that, re- that level of decline is why we have depopulation here, is because we used to have lots of workers and we don't anymore. So they all left. But how you manage that sort of decline is difficult in a post-industrial world where it's a service sector economy. You're starting to see the service sector move to India, China, Brazil, etc. So if... Scotland was to become an independent nation. Will. When, yes, when (laughs) Scotland becomes an independent nation, you have a moment in time. And it really is kind of a moment. It's a, you know, sort of a one-off deal during which you have an opportunity to, uh, and we'll not go into this in detail, but to set your currency, to set your, you have an opportunity to reset your economy. Mm-hmm. I think in, it's a in a way that is in a way that is um, precious, and that might be an opportunity that, in other words, if it were me, if I were there and um, was your economic, you know, your future economic minister, I think I would have my people in a room night and day and be beating them with sticks until they came up with. Uh, what I'll will pass be... that on to Derek Mackay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. To, in other words, to really hammer out a plan that is doable, that is realistic, that is humane, that is uh, profitable, that is you know that is all of those things. There is a way through, and they can find it. But you don't find it accidentally. You plan no. for it, and getting those plans in place, getting the right people in the right positions, having all of the, knowing all of that in advance is going to be the difference between Scotland starting out um, with a boom and Scotland sort Brexit. of 
you know, yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's it will make all the difference. Where yeah. Scotland's going and Brexit's going because we have a plan, and and that sounds so dramatic. We've got a plan. We've got a secret plan. Um, I, I haven't seen the secret plan. Um, <laughs> for reference, uh, the 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 <laughs> thing is though, um, it is is about a plan and it's it's actually the reason we want independence we don't want independence they people think this is the thing about civic nationalism versus ethnic nationalism they think it's all about the flag and whether we've got a queen or a president and what national anthem we sing and you know passports and border controls and all that don't that's the apparatus of independence that's the apparatus of the state we don't care about that that much that's not so fundamental i mean i'm sure there are people who out there will vote for independence because they really want to see a soul tire flying above Edinburgh Castle and that would be a nice sight. But that's not why I'm voting for independence. I'm voting for independence so that our government can have them power, so that we can do these things. And that's the driving impetus. It's doing that good work. It's, it's reforming our economy. That's why we want independence. So, yeah, we've got a plan because that's what we're doing it for. We're not doing it so we can get unicorns on a passport. We're not doing it so that we have a different national anthem. We're doing it so that we can do these things, so that we can bring in more progressive taxes, bring in more immigration, bring in and reorientate our economy. And it is about economic reorientation because Scotland is very much still a post-industrial society that is, that is service sector in many cases. We've got a lot of financial services and them sectors aren't being supported. You know, we've got all these new companies coming up, making new things, bringing tourists in, but they're not getting the support from Westminster. A really good example, when I'm not being a politician, I'm a graphic designer. I've, I've done work in the game industry, and the games industry in Scotland is very big. Uh, your your, your um, listeners might not know, but um, most of GTA games, the, the GTA um, franchise, is made in Scotland. There's even Easter eggs about Scottish people in the in the, the games, which always amuses us in Scotland. <laughs> the GTA games are made in Scotland. Now, the UK government has treated the games industry appallingly. You know, they they let up on tax breaks. They got rid of these these things to encourage more development in Dundee and Edinburgh of the games industry, and they've done away with support for them industry that industry. And yet, it's critical for Scotland, much like the fishing industry itself. So, if we become independent, we can do stuff about these industries. We can say, look, our economy is not London. We've got a games industry. Our economy right. is not London. We've got 50% of the UK's fisheries. So we right. need to support these industries. And doing that is the point of independence. Sorry to go on a very long epic rant about it, but that is the whole point of independence. It's doing that economic reorientation and alignment. It is supporting the new industries. It is supporting the people that are currently getting a really bad deal from London. That's the entire point of independence. It's having those powers to grow our economy, making a fairer, wealthier, greener, leaner Scotland, I think is the touch phrase they use. And it's, it's, it, that's the whole point of independence. And so many people don't understand that. They think it's about the anthems or the flags. And we don't care. You know, it, it's irrelevant. The, the relevancy is making sure that our economy has the levers to grow. It's, if we had a own currency, for instance, not to go into that too much, but it would be having a, the power to grow that economy through our currency it would be having the power to make sure we get, get enough immigrants to come in, and particularly of the right kind, to fill in the vacancies in our economy and the holes in our job market so we can put more money into training so we don't have those holes anymore. That's what we need those powers for. It's not about the flags. Sorry. <laughs> no, good. I That's mean, exactly what this yeah. show is for, by the way. Yeah. The, the point yeah. of this show, especially this section, is the long epic rants about yeah. like that. <laughs> 
thing is, so many people don't get that. They think it is solely about the flag and the passports and the anthems and stuff. They totally don't get that our raison d'etre, the, the SNP's raison d'etre as a social left of centre party, is to make Scotland better. And we just happen to need the powers of independence to do that. But that plan is our entire purpose. So, yeah, we've got a plan. Although I'm sure Derek Mackay does have people with sticks in a room banging out the details as we speak. But And I think as, as you're talking about how people don't understand that, that's one of the things that's been very interesting about watching the Brexit debate, because that seems to be what everyone assumes Scotland is on about. So why wouldn't they have voted leave? I'm very confused. And really, it seems like what they're missing is that Scotland views um, – the EU is a positive thing. I remember when it was it was 230 million euros that were trying that the EU tried to give to uh, Scottish farmers, and London actually seized it. Yeah, they they, they gave it to English farmers. They, they, they gave, gave some to Scottish farmers, but they they gave 10 percent to Scottish farmers when it was solely aimed at, at Scottish farmers. Yeah, they, they, they gave Scottish farmers 10 percent of what they were. And there's that. There's the fact that Scottish police and fire are the only ones that pay. VAT taxes, which for American audiences, VAT taxes, value-added taxes, it's basically sales taxes. Yeah, it's uh, 20%. Everything they, they spend money on, 20% goes to the UK government. No other police or fire service in the UK does that. So it, it's not that they there's this – it seems that for a lot of people in Scotland, the view is that Europe is a positive thing, a positive force in the life of, of Scottish people. Whereas Westminster, especially under David Cameron, is an actively malicious, destructive force. It, it is, and and that's just how how people. I don't I, I don't have the metrics to back it up, but they do exist. That Scotland benefits from Europe, but we don't so much benefit from the from the, the London Union. It's it's a tale of two unions. People are people were saying to me the other day, "Oh, how can you support independence for Scotland? Yet you want to stay in Europe." Europe's just a bigger union than UK. Well, yeah, the, Europe is a bigger union than the UK, but Europe doesn't put nuclear submarines five miles from my house and right. force us to pay for them as well. Europe doesn't say, no, you can't let that family stay in Scotland. You have to expel them. You know, we, we've, we, we've got a, there was a very famous family up north. They, they moved here from Australia. Their child's learning Gaelic, doesn't really speak English so well as Gaelic, and they're going to try and expel them. It, because they, they had a deal where they could come to the UK, study and stay here on a permanent visa. The UK government revoked the deal, changed the deal, and then said, right, well, we're changing the deal, so get out and take your child with you. And sorry, his education's going to suffer because he's been in Gaelic schools for the whole of his life. And it's it's that sort of thing that you can say, well, no, look, hold on. The, the people the people messing us around, the people st- stuffing us over constantly, it's not Brussels, it's London. They're the ones pushing the austerity agenda on us. You know, my council's facing a, a, a multi-million pound budget hole in the upcoming in upcoming years, and you know some of some of the wily politicians abroad have have blamed that on the Scottish government because they control the local government budget. But their budget's getting hammered even more, and they've got to pass the cuts on because there's there's nowhere for you know they can't magic the money out of the air. So it's it's London that's to blame for that, not Europe. So yeah, it's a tale of two unions. It is in the American South. Every state, the people from the state, they pay taxes, whatever. They send a certain amount of money to Washington. And Washington yeah, we've then... we've got the opposite. Yeah, and then Washington then sends a certain amount of money back to each... You know, they, they spend money in each state. And whether that is uh, money in Social Security or money that, you know, in various entitlement programs, whatever it is, they're spending money in those states, the the federal government. 
one of the things we've done a really poor job of here in the States is that the American South costs more than it contributes. Mm-hmm. And yet the American South is convinced it's the other way around. But it's not. Yeah. I mean, and it's so it is a matter again, it's a matter of how you tell the story, how you convey the information. And putting out a chart in the Wall Street Journal, um, I read it job. and other, you know, other economic wonks read it, but it's a it's a pretty short list of people who read it, you know, process it, understand what it means, and you know, and go from there. The majority of those people probably knew anyway. The the story that we, we've been told, um, you'll see this if you go anywhere in Scotland, and I hope, very much hope we continue to see these signs. You'll see signs in front of big building construction developments, and it will have a European flag and a Scottish flag. Money was provided for this project from the Scottish government and the European government, so you can see where your money has been spent. And it's something that we've done for quite a long time, and it's really effective because people go, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got EU money for that. And people were saying that during this whole Brexit debate. Well, hold on. My kid's school was built with EU money, you know, right. and, it, and it's, it, it brings it home to him. It brings it home where 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 this massive five hundred million people, huge EU thing that they don't really understand at the best of times, and no one really understands at the best of times. It, it brings it home locally as to what this means to you, and that's perhaps where your federal government's done a very poor job. They should put a, a federal government logo on everything that they provide money for, and maybe then the people would realize. Hold on a minute. Everything around me is provided for by those taxes. But the, the difference is, in Scotland, we pay all our taxes to London, and then they choose to give some back. Now, that's changing. We're going to get some very slight tax-raising powers, and some of the taxes will automatically come to Scotland in a block rather than just a block grant that has no bearing on taxes at all. That's changing as a result of the Scotland Act. But to be honest, I think by the time the Scotland Act is fully enacted, I think there's a very good chance we'll have already voted to leave anyway. So possibly overtaken by events there but we we spend all our money down there in a big block and then we get pocket money back whereas in the states you guys decide how much you're giving to washington or washington decides how much they're going to be taking but it's it's a it's a much different sort of it's it's like flipped on its head mm-hmm. and each state can decide its own its own tax system uh, florida uh-huh. doesn't have an income tax, for example because they mm-hmm. want they recognize that property taxes are were doing pretty well and then they crashed, and rather than instituting a very small income tax, they decided to just you know cut education because the state I was yeah, born in is sensible. stupid. But it's, well, it's going to get more stupid without education. But the, the exactly. reason why that happens is because old people don't have incomes. Yeah, that's why property. That's why that's why Florida doesn't have an income tax is because old people don't have incomes. But property taxes are much more make make more sense from a economic viewpoint when a lot of your population is over 60 and until, a lot of your population is retired and you've got big theme parks. Until the uh, the property market crashes because of uh, a housing bubble that we created in Florida by trying to flip too many homes and people end up flipping homes to each other. There's yeah, the yeah, development situation in South Stop voting for right-wing Republicans. That's what, that's what your answer is. There. You know, how do you get better gun control in the U.S.? Stop electing people that don't like gun control. How do you get better funding for schools? Stop electing people that don't like funding schools. It's democracy at its core level is exactly. If you get people to vote for you, they vote for you. It's a, it, someone said to me, um, I can't remember what it was. I was going to some event and it was, it was my fiance, and I was getting ready and doing my hair and putting on a tie. And I said, "Which tie?" And she says, "Why does it matter? It's not a popularity contest." And I looked at her and said, 
Yeah, yeah, it is a popularity contest. That's exactly what this is. It's a big popularity contest. And if you make yourself most popular, people vote for you. <laughs> you guys' problem is that you've been putting out lots of really good figures. And I say you guys, the Democrats' problem in the States is you've been putting out lots of good figures, great charts pointing out how economically illiterate all these Republican millionaires that seem to be suggesting tax breaks for millionaires are. But you haven't talked to people on the street and say, hey, these guys aren't in it for you. They're in it for themselves. And if you, right. if you, if you, the biggest thing you can do in any political campaign, and I'm sure you know this, and uh, it's always hammered into me by um, older politicians who don't like Twitter and Facebook and think that net activism doesn't do anything. It does. But the biggest thing you can do in an election campaign is get out there on the streets and bang some doors and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here for this candidate. and Here's why I think you should vote for them. That does more work than any number of fancy charts on Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. And the Republicans are really great at that because they go to their, these people and they talk to them on the street. They, they get out there and they pound the feet. Democrats do as well, but you're not selling the message. Right. Message is key. Sorry to tell, tell, uh, you, know, tell you how to suck eggs, but that's, no, that's, exactly, my, yeah. that's where you're going wrong. That's no, true. I think that's exactly that's exactly true. And and uh, my husband uh, does that almost that same rant only without the uh, lovely accent on a pretty regular basis. He's... <laughs> the thing is, this is how Barrack got elected because of his town halls. He went to the town halls. He went to your town hall in your town. And you never had a nominee come that far. He came there and said, hey, I'm here. Let's talk. That's yeah. got him a lot of popularity, and Hillary needs to do that more. But <laughs> you're from, you've, you've got the problem of you don't have that on a regional and, and municipal level because right. you're not interested in regional and municipal politics. If you ask the average voter, and it's the same here, to be fair, if you ask the average voter who their local councilman is, I don't know. You ask your local voter in, in most states in the U.S. what their state senators are and who their congressmen are, they have no idea. And that lack of interest is where you get problems because they, they see it as this big remote thing, not Joe that lives on the corner that's their senator and has lived there all his life and his family go to church at the same. They don't know that. They just know it as Washington's taking all our money again, spending it on things we don't need like schools. And that was the, the real success, actually, of the, the Barack Obama campaign was they canvassed in rural Virginia. They went to, to the ninth district of Virginia, which is nowhere, and they had people knocking on doors for Barack Obama. Which... Yeah, we, we have a goal. We try and knock on every single door we can. We aim for 100% canvas. We never get there. We get it about 10 or 20%. But that's a, that's a, that's a good ask. You know? Sorry. We went on a long rant there about the failings of the Democratic Party, which are slight. Well, but to talk yes. about that some more, because this is my worry about the Democratic Party, is I'm looking at the Labour Party. In Scotland, and so, I, I remember Glasgow was called the Citadel of Socialism. Uh huh. You had you had the the red, red Clydeside, yeah, red Clydeside, which uh, has has a history of, of labor activism. You have that's a history of communism. It's the only place in the United Kingdom to elect communists back in yeah. the forties and fifties. You have, you have Keir Hardy, who yes. founded the Labor Party in Scottish. You have um, also Robert Bontine Cunningham Graham, who is the uh, uh, founder of the Scottish National Party, uh, one of them, yeah. as well as uh, the founder the, of the, the two of them, are oddly very good friends. Yeah, <laughs> um, you you have you have that that you know sort of twin movement there. But but the thing is, the, for the Labour Party to go from massive amounts of support to nothing, I think there's a very stark warning 
there for every other major left-wing party on the planet. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm looking at the Labour Party and what happened to it, both in Scotland and the UK, and it seems to just be this den of constant infighting. Like, Jeremy Corbyn is accused of not doing enough for the, the, the Brexit campaign, so people are trying to challenge him right now and bring him down and trigger another Labour leadership election. Oh, no, that, that's not why they're trying to bring him down. They're trying to bring him down because they never wanted him in the first place. Right. But they're just he, using this as a good time. Here's, here's my favorite, one of, the, one of the moments yesterday where I actually laughed out loud. I heard that Jeremy Corbyn has um, sent, as of yesterday, a member of his shadow cabinet up to the Midlands to start to talk to people to find out why they're so unhappy with labor. That, I believe... <laughs> <laughs> I believe that is actually the definition of shutting the door after the horse is out of the barn. I mean, it just yeah. The, uh, they they should have been doing that about five years ago. Yeah. Now oh. you think of that, I just it it was a it was a pretty staggering it was a pretty staggering moment to me. The problem with the Labour Party in Scotland, and I say the Labour Party in Scotland, there really isn't one anymore. In many real respects, it is gone, and that they have their local councils still. But that's you know there's a top, there's a clock ticking for our local government elections next May, mine at my election in fact. Um, you know there's a clock ticking on that election, and then they're going to lose. I, think, I suspect the majority, if not all, of their councils in Scotland as well. Scotland has a three tiered government system for it. For your listeners that don't know, after Will's constant talks about it, um, regional, so your local council, um, national, the Scottish government, and then the ones down in London. What we talk about less. And they've lost their UK government representatives. You know, they've lost the UK Parliament MPs. They've lost most of their MSPs in the Scottish Parliament. And now they're about to lose all of their local representatives as well. And the reason for that is they stopped being a left-wing party. They stopped listening to their activists. The Labour Party, their activists didn't leave the Labour Party. The Labour Party left their activists. They all jumped into bed to go to this neoliberal right-wing group in in England by Tony Blair, the, the, the new Labour projects. And when they did that, they lost all their activists in Scotland because they, they just went, well, hold on, this isn't the party I joined. Why aren't we rolling back any of the trade union laws that the Tories brought in? Why aren't we doing more for students? Why are we bringing in a student tax? I didn't want this. So they left. And that, that's where they've gone. That's why they've gone so quickly because that shell I talked about earlier, that shell collapsed. So when they lose in an election, you lose in one election, sure, you pick up the pieces and rebuild, but there's no one to pick up the pieces. The only people that are left in the Labour Party are ex-MPs, ex-MSPs, and their councillors. And they're all going to be ex-councillors next year. So that's, that's, that's the, the lesson for the Democrats is don't move away from your base. Stay true to your party principles, or you'll leave your base behind, and there'll be no one to help you rebuild when you, when you do badly in an election. Labour have done badly in a lot of elections, well, mostly think, because of the infighting. I think what you see in this primary here in the States is that the Democratic Party did learn something. I <laughs> think not only did, I think not only has uh, our uh, nominee learned something or our soon-to-be nominee learned something and moved accordingly. And I, I don't think that the DNC and Hillary um, are pretending I don't think it's um, a surface thing. I think they actually 
got it. I think they heard what people said and they have shifted accordingly. Um, I think that's how you win elections. I think I would be a lot less concerned if I was a, a left leaning. And to be fair, if I was in the States, I wouldn't be left of center where I am in Scotland. My politics are left of center in Scotland. If I moved to America, I would instantly become far left. I support nationalized healthcare. I support the right. nationalization of energy companies and train companies and, and the train lines and, and a lot of other things. Anyway, um, but if I was in the left of center in the US, I would be a lot less concerned about the situation currently than um, the, the, the Labour Party are in Scotland because they've not left their activists behind. The, the Bernie Sanders crew, sure, they're articulating a left of center message. But apart from a few crazies who are saying they'll never vote for anyone but Bernie, these people will will get on board. You know, they'll join the program and they'll vote for their candidate Hillary, because they might might want to want a different candidate, but they still want the Democrats to win. Well, and, and more importantly, run they'll run for office. That's right. More importantly, mm-hmm. what they've what they've figured out in this election is, oh, I need to actually get involved and stay involved, and that's mm-hmm. that. I think really. That's the single most important thing to come out of this election. Electing Hillary is not the most important thing to come out of this election. That is the most important thing. Yeah, involvement is key. We we had our referendum and we our referendum had 85% turnout. And since then, the SNP went from 25,000 members nationally, which is a respectable number, to 125,000 nationally, which went, it doesn't sound very big numbers for you guys over there in the States, but... That's 5% of the entire Scottish population. So, you know, it, it, it's a really large number we and, are getting to. And to point out also, if you're a member of a Scottish political party, there are dues. Oh, yeah, you have to pay a membership due. You can't just say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an SNP member. No, you have to pay up. You have to pay your, your monthly membership dues. It's not very much. It's a couple of pounds a month. But the point is, you have to go out there. You can't just join us by saying you've joined us. You actually have to go out. You have to fill in a form. You have to sign up. You have to give us money. And that's maybe where the Democrats could learn something from Scotland, because that money really does help when you come to win elections. You don't have to then be, um, you, you don't have to talk to corporate donors then, for instance. You don't have to talk to interest groups. You don't have to pander to unions or anything. If that's not what you, uh, if, if their message isn't what you like, you don't have to take their money and quietly do it. And I'm not sure the Democrat Party does do that, but we all know there have been candidates over the years who have done that in the past. They've had to pander to special interests because they need the money. And our membership provides the money. Our membership, our donors, and we've got their membership details on on side already. We've already got their money. So we can say, hey, can you give us a bit more? We really need to win this election. So that's really handy for us. But the the real thing that we've got problems with that you guys can, can learn from as well is we've got all these members that we got engaged for the last referendum and then they kind of fell away. But now we're getting back. We had 1,500 people join the SNP in the last day and a half. 1,500 people. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's in the last 24 hours, 1,500 people have rejoined the SNP. So involvement counts. Involvement, getting people involved is far more important than an individual candidate. The fact that you've got all these, these, these uh, what are you calling them? Um, are you calling them the Bernies, the, the Bernsters, um, whatever, whatever you call them? Um, in fact, the, the fact that you've got all these people that are feeling the burn and are now going to vote for Hillary, that's not a crisis. That's not a problem. That's an opportunity because you've right. got the opportunity to go out and say, hey, you got involved in democratic politics. Brilliant. Here's a meeting. Come along. 
we need to talk about our policies for the next Senate election, or we need to talk about how we're going to take control of the city council, or whatever. You get them involved, you get them, you get their money, you get their involvement, you get their ideas. A you get their leadership. Yeah, your party runs on the on the legs of its people. We have a saying in the party that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And quite often people think that means we're talking about the nationalists of days past, you know, the Margaret Ewings that have, you know, the came, they've came and gone, but they, they're the people that got the SNP where it is today. But we also talk about that meaning our members because you stand on the shoulders of them because you can't do anything without an active membership. You can't canvas. You've got to canvas 1,500 properties. That's a lot of door knocking. You can't do that without people. And getting people involved just because there's an election is right where you go wrong. You keep them involved when there's not elections. That's where you go wrong in the States. You guys only seem to do politics every two years or four years. You don't do politics day in, day out. That's how you keep people involved. That's how you get their ideas, their money, their leadership. And that's how you keep them engaged when it comes to the next election. Because they might not like this guy or this girl. But the next election is only a couple of years away, so they can start prepping for that. That's where you lose people if you don't keep them involved. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. At, well, at this point, that was another epic rant. Sorry. That's, that's great. That's right. Uh, Arliss, do you have another question? Or? No, I was just going to um, to thank you, actually. And um, I think it is interesting to hear from people who, from whom we could learn. Exactly. And even though the U.S. is very large and Scotland is very small, I think that Scotland has really um, taken some of the major lessons of democracy and learned them and is applying them in a functional and hopeful way. And well, that is the big I think it encourages us. Yeah, that that is the big lesson of our referendum. We got people involved. How do we keep them involved? And we don't know the answer to that. We're not perfect at it. But when you say Scotland's not like the U.S. because we're very small, very we're about the same size as the average U.S. state, politically, population-wise, and actual um, size-wise, when you actually take into account how large Scotland is, including its islands and maritime area. So we're kind of like a small to mid-sized U.S. state, like North Dakota or you know um, one of the Carolinas. So on a state level, Scotland should, would, is a good model for how the Democrats should be looking at the state elections coming up in two years. You know, you, you've got elections coming up. You've always got elections coming up in a democracy. People get election fatigue. That's how your lesson should be. If you're going to take any lessons from us, please do. Keep people involved. Get them involved. Stay involved. And get their money and ideas. And then you don't have to look to the companies and the corporations. Well, I just want to say uh, that... Personally, from my perspective, the other great advantage of uh, Brexit and the absolute meltdown um, that's happening right now is that I've always wanted that four-slice dual at toaster, and I think this is the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to be, to be clear, we really did not want this. I mean, we're going to try and make the best of it. We really did not want a Brexit. This is going to cause immense problems for Scotland and that's putting aside the fact, you know, I'm English. My family come from England and got family in England and friends in England. And I, I, my heart goes out to them because this is going to be yeah. devastating. And I truly don't think that a lot of the people who voted leave understand what a mess this is going to make. I, I think the UK will rebound or the remnant UK. I don't think that Scotland will be part of that rebounding. I think we'll be, we'll, we'll be moving on in a slightly different European direction. I'm not sure what's going to happen in Ireland. 
But I know that in England, there are going to be a lot of people who are looking back at what happened this week and saying, why or why did we vote to leave? Because it's just going to be a nightmare. But, you know, it's clouds, clouds with silver linings, you can go and get your toaster because the pound right now is, is somewhere. <laughs> I don't even know what the pound is right now. Last time I looked, it was 130. I'm going to be 55. Also- I'm also going to be making a, a, a uh, investment in your whiskey industry. Uh, <laughs> well, we we thank you for that because that money will help us. But you know, the it, it joking aside, it is a real mess. What happens yeah. next with yeah. the pound and the UK economy? It's just going to be a. I think the the pound is currently at one thirty one. Oh, that's a that's a massive drop. But yeah, to, to go back to what you were saying, the. Brexit is going to cause some real difficulties in the short to medium term. I think the UK economy will respond. I mean, it's the fourth, well, it was the fifth largest, now the sixth largest next to the pound foreign economy in the world. It will rebound. But how it rebounds and the time it takes to rebuild those alliances, trading partners, work out how to, to live in a non-EU world, it's going to be difficult for them. I say them because it's time for us to go. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really, I really appreciate it. The, um, Thanks for having me. It's it, the opportunity to have someone who's got their feet on the ground there has been just wonderful. Uh, folks, you can follow Hopping Mad on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. If you listen to us in one of those places and can pause and take a moment to um, rate us. We would really appreciate that. It really helps. Also, you can find us on our website, imhoppingmad.com. And we do get great emails and responses on our comments page. And we would love to hear from you there. And uh, as well as on Twitter, where we are up there as I'm Hopping Mad, or in my case, I'm there as Arliss Bunny, at Arliss Bunny. And Will, you are? Will McLeod 99. So please feel free to follow us, uh, um, send us your comments, and we always love to hear from you. Th- we want to send an extra. Sp- we want to send an extra special thank you to Matt Campbell Sturgis for joining us here today. He's the, <laughs> he's the SNP rep from Inverclyde Council in Scotland, UK, and uh, it's an unusual opportunity for us. And just thank you very much. Not at all. All right, folks. We'll catch you next time.